Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I have been intentionally not posting much on Facebook as of late, so as not to ca- uh, bring, put a target on this church or on your pastor, uh, I just, sometimes it just is not profitable to stick your finger into things that uh, people are not asking your advice, but every now and then I just can't help it, and uh, <laughs> yesterday was one of them. Uh, I should have, should have given this to the sound guys back there. Uh, if you go on my page, I, I reposted something to Haviland Ford posted from Matt Lockett. And it's a picture of uh, Horton Hears a Who, the book Horton Hears a Who. And now that was one of the, the prophetic words that Lou Engel and his crew got about overturning abortion. And that Horton, the elephant, heard the voice of the smallest life and preserved it. And there's a picture uh, of the, the last phrase of the book, and this is what it says. Horton standing there with the other characters, I guess the kangaroo, uh, holding the little tree with that little life, and it says, Me too, from sun in the summer, from the rain when it's fallish, I'm going to protect them all, no matter how smallish. And then they wrote on the other page, The End. Big old exclamation point, and June 24th, 2022, and there's a picture of the Supreme Court behind it. And uh, this, is a, this is a monumental thing. Uh, the other thing that I reposted, nothing original here in my head, uh, Dean Briggs had posted, that, uh, reissued this prayer. You've heard this prayer prayed many times. Amy will often pray, for, pray this out in the mornings. Uh, Jesus, I plead your blood over my sins and the sins of my nation. God, end abortion. Send revival to America. And in this version, there's, it's that God end abortion. There's a check mark. It's like, okay, one down, one to go. God's already, he, he's already moving in this regard. So the next thing is God send revival to America. This is a very significant thing. You know, the two, two of the primary gods of the Old Testament, pagan gods, were the god of Baal and Moloch. And initially, Baal and Moloch were one god. They were, it was a fertility cult. Uh, it was behind what we know as, uh, you know, Mother Nature, that whole idea of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, really goes back to ancient paganism. Even Wicca and witchcraft go back to ancient paganism, where the idea that there was Mother Earth, the female goddess, and Baal, the sun god, and the sun god would rain on the earth, his sperm, in the form of physical rain, and it would bring forth fruit out, out of the womb of the earth, and they would eat of the fruit of the land. It was an agricultural culture, and so they worshipped these fertility cults. The flip side of that was this fertility god demanded fertility, and they would they would participate into sexual immorality. Matter of fact, many of the hot-button political issues today 
ultimately go back and show up in these ancient pagan rites. Matter of fact, there's writings in ancient paganism where there was the swapping of gender roles, where men would dress like women and women would put on the warrior's outfits. I'm going to get a little graphic here. We've dismissed most of the kids. I'll try to be gentle here. Uh, but uh, there's, there's writings in ancient culture where men would literally cut off their genitalia and they would throw it into someone's house and the household in which they so, threw it was then responsible to provide women's clothing for them from then on. There's nothing new under the sun. But all of this was part of these pagan rites. And so one of, the, one of the big things that Israel had to deal with was Baal worship. And often their sons were led astray into the orgy, orgies of Baalism. And so God was very, very serious about overthrowing Baal. And we see Elijah showing up on the mountain and calling down fire and defeating the, seven, the 700 prophets of Baal. And then... Jezebel came after Elijah because of that, because that was her power base. Over time, this fertility cult, uh, th because there was, there was worship through sexual immorality and the temple prostitutes, the flip side was, then these gods would demand human sacrifice and sacrifice the babies. Over time, these two gods became worshiped separately, so Baal was the fertility god, the god of agriculture, the sun god, and Moloch was the god of war and finance. And so they would worship Baal and they would participate in sexual immorality. Isn't it interesting how man develops gods that endorse his lusts? So there was the, the, the sexual immorality of Baal worship and then there was the sacrifice of babies under Moloch worship and it was the god of finance and war. And so they would sacrifice their children so that they would have favor from this god Moloch when they'd go to war and they would be blessed in their finance. And it brought the judgment of God on these cultures. Matter of fact, there's not a lot written compared to some other cults in ancient history because of the graphic nature. But they have found sites near Israel where literally thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, charred remains of infants were found. And in our minds, we think, well, it's because they were these prehistoric people that didn't know better, but that's not the case. The fact is they sacrificed children precisely because they did know better. And the idea behind it was that unnatural reversal. It's like um, even, even in witchcraft, this shows up, and in Wiccan I guess you could call it theology, uh, the going reversal. You go against nature to get to the source of power. And so what was the most unnatural thing they could do is kill their children, and they would do it to invite demonic power. And make no mistake about it, the abortion industry in this nation is a power base for the demonic realm. And there are a lot of people who have participated. We, we are a pro-life church from beginning to end. It's not a coincidence that Jennifer Rausch led a pro-life ministry in this region for a long time. And when she moved away, what did God do? He raised up Christy, Christy Judkins to step into a pro-life ministry and take the lead. Laura Lemmicks uh, leads a ministry 
helping people on the other side. So Christy stands at the gate trying to keep people from making that mistake. Laura's on the other side helping people heal from the woundedness of making that mistake. We also support Mark. Uh, What's Mark's last name? Mark McDougal. I can't can't remember his name. Mark McDougal of Ruth Harbor Ministries. uh, And it's a ministry to help ladies in that situation that will step in, give them a place to live, support them, bring them through the pregnancy. If they want to raise their child, there's help for that. There's housing. If they want to send it, uh, give it up for adoption, then there's help for that. There's been other individuals in the church that have stepped into the adoption answer. And so there's a holistic approach. But make no mistake about it that this issue is a huge issue when it comes to the spiritual realm. Many of you are aware of John, uh, Bob Jones, the prophet. He, Bob Jones went to be with the Lord a number of years ago now, but he was, there, there's crazy stories that I know of Bob Jones, people that I know that have met him and crazy stories about uh, the accuracy of his prophetic words and things he saw decades ago. He talked about, for instance, he, he, taught, he told Mike Bickle, he said, there's, back in, this was in the early 80s, he said, there's, I see people in Asia watching worship from your place on unplugged television sets in their hands in the rice paddies. There was no such thing at the time. Now today, of course, IHOP, under the leadership of Mike Bickle, is pumping worship night and day, and one of their biggest audiences is in Asia with their smartphones, and they're worshiping and starting houses of prayer off of that. He had a lot of interesting prophetic words, but back in the 70s, the Lord told him to begin to prophesy the overthrow of abortion in this nation. And he he said that a demonic spirit manifested before him and said, if you do this, you will die. I will kill you. He began to prophesy it and got very sick and bled out and died. Went to, he, he actually went to heaven and the Lord told him, I want you to go back. There's still work for you to do. And he was raised from the dead and had a number of decades of fruitful ministry and was really a strength to many of the movements that were associated with. Why would that spirit show up in such a vehement way over that issue? Because I'm telling you, it is the power base for the occult and for the demonic realm. And there are many people who have been involved in abortions that have no clue. They don't understand that. I'm not saying that everybody that's been involved, there's most don't. But I'm telling you, the spiritual realm understands. And if you've been a participant in an abortion, whether male or female, There's a loss there, and there's healing, and there's forgiveness, and stake your claim so others don't have to make the same mistake. And Laura here, Laura, wave your hand. Laura right there, she uh, she can lead you through ministry and healing, and uh, man, there's, there's been many, many tremendous stories of deliverance and people getting free uh, from the wounds of that situation in their own lives. Uh, One of, one of my favorites, what was the name of the Cuban lady? What was her first name? Daime, uh, she was a large uh, kind of Jamaican woman, very athletic, big gal down in, in Cuba. That uh, and Laura was sharing about her abortion and how God healed her, and began to talk about God wants to heal some of you if you've had an abortion. And Daime came up and uh, confessed to Laura later, "I wanted to come up and break you." 
And uh, she's a big enough gal to do so. And Laura was like, oh my. And uh, Daime had had, she shared this testimony publicly. She's, she'd had five abortions. Was it seven? Seven abortions. And uh, some of them, after she was married and never told her husband, their youngest child was about, what, three years old, four years old? Two years old, okay? See, I gotta get all the details here, okay? <laughs> we're tag teaming. Two years old, had never spoken a word. And uh, they, they were very concerned. She got very depressed after hearing Laura's testimony. Isn't that great, Laura's, the effect Laura's ministry had on her? She got very depressed because she did not want to deal with this. She had never told her husband. And uh, there, were, there was weeks that went by. She didn't bathe. She didn't you know, take care of herself. They were, just, they were at odds with each other. Uh, their, their marriage was in danger. And finally, one night they sat down and she confessed to her husband what had happened. All of these abortions that she had, she had brought that on. She had pounded her belly because she, she thought, man, in this, this, this uh, economic situation, we're, we're not going to be able to afford a child and all of that. And uh, there was just a lot of depression in her life. She confessed it to her husband. God ministered to her. As the sun was coming up, they'd spent the whole night reconciling to each other when from the bedroom they heard their youngest little boy's voice, Mama, Mama. The first time their child ever spoke was when mom dealt with that woundedness. Now, I don't understand all of that, but I know this, that the enemy will use those things against a family. And there is healing and there is forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But understand, every life is significant. There is a plan that God has, a story. There is purpose in every life. And the enemy has a vested interest in wiping those lives out. Keeping those purposes from being realized. And so this is a very significant thing. This, this, this uh, decision at the Supreme Court level has been prophesied for many years. And frankly, I didn't really have the faith for it. That's a confession. But this is a significant thing. And we need to rejoice and we need to continue to pray that those that are in those dire situations that would make such a, a drastic decision that they would meet believers that could step in and help them Amen. along that way. Amen? Amen. All right. Hallelujah. Let's get into the word. Okay, we are in. Oh, I wanted to mention, there's, uh, one of the gals had lost a purse. It's a backpack type purse. If you found one, it's in the bookstore. It's in the bookstore. Whoever, whoever lost their purse. So you got it. So let's get into the word. We've been, uh, we've been on a, a, uh, a series uh, Pastor Drew preached for me a few few weeks back and started talking about foundations, and it gripped my heart. And so we're, I, I thought, man, I'm just going to jump in on, on Drew's emphasis, and we're going to continue on that, because I do believe right now we're in a season of church history, history itself. We are in a season of transition, uh, and God is doing some tremendous things, but we need a strong foundation in this hour. There are pre unprecedented pressures that you will need a foundation in the time of storm. If your roots are not deep, you can get blown over. If your roots are not intertangled with other believers, you can get blown over. And so 
We're, we're looking at foundation. So now, Hebrews chapter six. Let's go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter six. The writer says, let us not leave, or let us not, well, let me read it to you here. If I can get my computer to cooperate. All right, Hebrews chapter six. He says, let us not lay again the foundation My apple is running slow here. Okay. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken towards maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Let me read that again. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. So he's saying, uh, some versions try and say, let us leave the elementary teachings. This, is, this ESV brings a little more clarity. He's not saying forget about those. He's saying let's not have to continue to go over the same elementary teachings. Let's not be like the third grader that has to keep learning basic math and can't move into uh, multiplication and then uh, geometry and algebra and all those others, okay? So let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ to be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation. And he gives the principles of foundations. Uh, in this passage, he's talking about doctrinal foundations. Uh, Acts chapter two, there is a, uh, a practice, foundations of the practices of the church where he says they devoted themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread into fellowship. That, those are foundational teachings. We have another passage that deals with foundations. Matter of fact, it was the text of Pastor Drew's message, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And at the end of that passage, chapter seven, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in another book, I believe it's in Luke, Jesus taught any, it was the same outline, but it was the Sermon on the Plain. So we know that when Jesus taught this, this was a teaching that he brought again and again and again. And so there's some real basic teaching we get in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end, Jesus says this. Any man who builds his life on these teachings is like a man who built his house upon a rock. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is foundational teaching. So we have several passages that give us foundational doctrine for the Christian faith, and it's important we understand. This one is really the method of the building of the foundation. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians, I want to say it's chapter 6, where Paul says, we lay no other foundation but Christ. So Jesus is the material of the foundation, but here we have the methodology of building the foundation. How do you get Jesus built into your life? Acts chapter two is another one that deals with that. How do, we, how do you build Jesus into your life? From, he says the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. We dealt with that two weeks ago. Repentance and faith are the beginning, are the threshold of the Christian life. It's both. It's not good enough just to believe if you haven't repented. Repentance is digging down. 
It's removing the barriers. It's removing the old ground so you can pour the foundation. If you're going to pour a foundation, you've got to bring the excavator in and you've got to remove the old so you can lay in the new. So it's through repentance and faith. And one of the problems in our nation today is we've preached a lot of faith but not enough repentance. So there's people that come to Jesus but they haven't turned from their old lifestyle. Jesus has been a bolt-on add-on to their life. But when the pressures of life come, they leave the faith because there wasn't repentance. Repentance assesses our life before Christ accurately. It's what shows us our need for Christ. You can put it this way. Repentance is the response to the bad news. Faith is the response to the good news. You are more hungry for the good news when you've embraced the bad news. The bad news is that you are a sinner and you need Christ. I was talking to someone this week and I was talking about you know where I came from before I got saved and where they came from before they got saved. Uh, they, they've repented, but I said, people like me, it's a little easier to get them saved because they see the fruit of their own self-will. They see where they, you know, when I saw my life, it's like I, the blinders came off my eyes. It's, I think of the prodigal son, it says, and he came to himself and he thought of the father. It's like I turned a corner and I had to face who I really was. And I'd made a royal mess of my life. Sometimes it's harder to get people who are successful saved because they don't see the need for God. I remember talking to a young man and as we talked about the gospel, I said, you know, the way you're talking, it sounds like you think you did God a favor when you got saved. He said, well, yeah. He said, look at me. Man, God could really use a guy like me. I mean... Look at me. I mean, he actually said that. I like scooted away less lightning strike, you know, and, and informed him that we all need God. And so repentance and faith. Then he says, and the instructions about cleansing rites. Uh, that's, that's how the ESV translates it. There is discrepancy among scholars what's being alluded to here. Uh, other translations say instructions in baptisms. I am convinced that that is, the, that is what he's alluding to. Uh, baptisms, and he says it plural, instructions in baptisms. And so we have, how do we get saved? Repentance, faith, and the next thing that we need to understand is baptisms, instructions in baptisms. And there are a number of baptisms spoken of in Scripture. There's John's baptism of repentance. There's Christian baptism into Christ, Christ's death, Hebrews chapter, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 6. There is the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire in Luke chapter 3. And then Jesus also spoke of a baptism of suffering. And so all of these are spoken of in Scripture. So there's instructions in baptisms. But yet we see in Ephesians chapter 4, from, a, from Paul's perspective, the way Paul thinks, Paul says, there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. 
So Paul, you can deal with baptism as one whole. Because John preached a baptism of repentance, which is part of what Christian baptism is. When we're baptized into his death, we don't embrace our burial with him into his death if we don't see the need for our need to repent. That guy that said, God is really lucky to have me, he didn't see a need to repent and he didn't see a need to die. Matter of fact, he thought God just wanted to anoint him the way he was before he met Jesus. And so we go down into the water and when we understand what water baptism is, there's a repentance and there's an agreement that we're saying, God, I agree with your assessment of me before I was saved. And I too agree that I must go under the water, the watery grave and leave that old man behind. And we come up, scripture says, in newness of life according to Romans 6. And Jesus' baptism is our example. He went down in the water, he came up, and the Spirit lit upon him. So there's this baptism in water, baptism in the Spirit. And then in Jesus' ministry, you remember what happened. Down in the water, came up, the Spirit came upon him, and he was immediately driven into the wilderness to what? Be tested of the devil. And all of those are what John had just prophesied. John was preaching and he said, the one who comes after me, the one whose shoes I am unworthy to untie, this is Luke chapter three, he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Then Jesus presents himself and John said, whoa, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus said, listen, I must fulfill all of righteousness. Will you baptize me? And John acquiesces, puts him down in the water. He comes up. The, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he immediately went into the wilderness to be tested of the enemy. That was Jesus' baptism of fire. So when we talk about instructions in baptisms, there's the burial into our repentance and death. There's the resurrection and the Spirit coming upon us. And then there is the baptism of fire to purify us. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day. He, he called and he said, what do you make of that verse? That baptism of fire, what do you think that is? And I told him, I said, I think if you look in that passage, John has already told us what it is. John said, the one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And then he goes on to say, his winnowing fork is already in his hand to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What's he talking about? Well, everybody standing around John understood because again, they were an agricultural culture. And so the idea was that they would harvest grain and they, in their fields of harvest, they would always take the highest point in the field and they would put a clay base there and they would stamp it down really hard. And that was what was known as the threshing floor. And it'd have to be the highest point because they wanted the threshing floor to catch the wind. Because the idea was that they would, they would harvest the grain and they would throw that freshly harvested grain immediately on the threshing floor and they would take a large stone wheel, kind of like, it would look something like Fred Flintstone's car. Remember that? You know, he had his little, yeah, you know, you know why he had four toes? Because that was his brakes. He lost one. But he would have, he would, but I'm here all week. So anyways, they would crush the grain with that stone and it would break the outer husk to get at the grain that was inside that which was usable. 
And so then they would take what was known as a winnowing fork. And a winnowing fork is just like a pitchfork. And they would take that and they would throw it up in the air and the wind would catch the fluff, the, the outer husk, and it would blow it away and the weighty grain would fall back to the ground. And they would keep doing that till all that remained was that which was usable to feed others. So John says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. And it was winnowing fork is already in his hand. And then he adds this. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's some vivid language. That was not a common practice. Everything else he was talking about was common. They would just let the chaff blow away, but not Jesus. Jesus then gathers up the chaff that is not usable Matter of fact, the chaff keeps you from getting at what is usable. It had to be broken. The weight of that threshing wheel would break that external kernel and open up that grain. And then the, when the wind would catch it, it would blow the chaff away. But Jesus was not satisfied to merely separate them. He wanted to consume that which is not usable in your life. That is the baptism of fire. Now, when we talk about the fire of God, we usually think of it, you know, man, we had a great service. The fire of God fell. And there is truth to that. But before the fire of God can come through you, it's going to test and establish you. And that's why in Jesus' experience, again, look at it. It's in Luke chapter 3. He went down in the water left his self-life behind, came up, and he was then driven by the Spirit. He was not leading his own life. He came under the anointing, driven into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. God was establishing what he heard in the river in the wilderness. Remember in, the, in his baptism, there were really three, if not four, components to Jesus' baptism. He came up, it says, the heavens opened, there was a, an increase of access, both God's access to him and his access to God. That concept of an open heaven is a very important concept in scripture. And we throw it around a lot, but often we don't really understand what that means. It means that the enemy has been crippled in that space, that there's heaven's activity. Matter of fact, Jesus himself prophesied over Nathanael, the disciple Nathanael. He said, you shall see the heavens open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It was a, an allusion to Genesis 28, the original open heaven of Bethel. And Jesus was saying, I am the ladder. I am the access. I am the, the, the stairway of heaven's activity, the, the transaction of heaven and earth. And so in Jesus' baptism, that opened up to him. There was an open heaven. The dove descended. The spirit came upon him in bodily form like a dove. So there was access. The anointing came on him. And then the third component was that he heard the Father's affirmation. This is one of, if not the primary activity of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. To shed the love of God abroad in your heart. 
according to Romans chapter 5. The Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, Romans 8 says. He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. He reveals the Father's love to our spirit so that we know we are loved. He roots and establishes us in the love of God. And so Jesus hears this voice, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, comes up out of the water, dripping not only with water, but with the spirit of God himself. And then it says immediately he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He was tested and the enemy said this, God said in the water, you are my son. The enemy said, if you're really the son, then manufacture a miracle to validate your identity. Prove it. Use spiritual gifts. Use ministry. Use the anointing as your personal validation mechanism. Anchor your identity in the externals and what you can do rather than who you are. That was the temptation. And Jesus refused. He held to what the Father said to him. I'm going to tell you, every encounter you have with God, every river, open heaven, voice of heaven experience you have will be inevitably be followed by a wilderness experience to establish it. And it says explicitly in that passage that Jesus, following his baptism, it says he was driven by the Spirit and he was full of the Spirit and he went into the wilderness. But it says he emerged from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Now, I was raised Pentecostal. I came up through the Assemblies of God in my training. And we always emphasized that element of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If someone were to ask me as a young preacher, what is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I would have said power to be a witness. Power. And that is one of them. There's the external power for ministry and the internal power for identity and to live in purity. Paul said, it's by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So the Spirit-filled life, drawing from his life through the Spirit-filled life, is one of the keys to overcoming our flesh. If your mentality, if, you, if the way you think you're going to get free from your old man is by growing your no, you're in for a rude awakening. Because just saying no to the enemy, just saying no to your flesh is not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is not about strengthening your negative. It's about strengthening your positive. It's by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Christianity is much more about saying yes to God than it is about saying no to the enemy. Because when you're saying no to the enemy and to your flesh, that's what you're focused on. The enemy and your flesh. But when you begin to give your yes to God. And one of the ways the Spirit enables us to do that is he reveals the love of God to our hearts. Now what does John tell us? The apostle of love. What does he tell us? We love him, why? Because he first loved us. Jesus himself said that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. 
So the secret of living an obedient life, living a pure life, is having the love of God birthed in our hearts so that we live out of love for him. But we can't work that love up. It's not a white-knuckled attempt at trying to be more loving. Our love for him comes out of the taproot of his love for us. So when he reveals his great love for us, it will awaken within you a reciprocal love. You can't help but love him back when you see his love for you. If you're struggling with besetting sin, if you're struggling in your life with serving the Lord in a consistent way, then my counsel to you would be to get a hold of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to the end of the passage and begin to pray that prayer over your life every day. Begin to ask the Lord for the reality of that prayer. Paul prays it. He said, for this reason I kneel. We, we talked about it last weekend. That, that was our text for Father's Day. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that he would Enlighten the eyes of your mind so that you would know the magnitude of his love for the saints in Christ Jesus. The height, depth, width, and breadth of his love. And that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is a jam-packed, pregnant little passage that tells you, in order for you to be filled to the fullness... You've got to have a revelation of his love because if you don't, you'll have your guard up and you'll only allow the Lord so far in your life. So you need to ask the Lord, God, reveal your love to me because when you see his love for you, it will trigger hidden caverns of affection that God has already placed within you for him. It'll cause you to love him in a reciprocal way. You won't be able to help it. And so we need to see his love. And he, when, when Paul says that you would know this love, that surpasses knowledge. It's a weird phrase. Know something that's beyond knowing. What he's saying is that you would have an experience of this love that is beyond your ability to understand by study. You can't know this love without having an encounter. It's by experience. Like I've said before, you know, I used to, I was a preacher before I got married and I would preach on love and I would preach on being in love and all that stuff. I'd preach on marriage passages, didn't have a whole lot to say, had a lot of theory. Some of them I had to throw out, burn my sermons, but uh, I didn't, I didn't understand love. I could talk about it theoretically. And then I was in love when I met Kathy Cassidy. I became in love. I lost weight. I had Kathy on the brain. I couldn't think straight. It was hard to study. My wife will say, oh, Dave, wasn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it be great to be back there? I said, no. I'd be like, I probably died. I, could, I wouldn't eat. I, couldn't, I wouldn't have graduated from Bible school. It was too much. Now we're in mature love. I still love my wife. But it's not, I, I can still eat, as, it, as you can see. So I didn't understand love until I was in love. That's what Paul is saying, that you need an experience and that experience comes by the Spirit of God who is to shed the love of God abroad in your heart. That's his purpose. So he gives you that encounter, that experience. 
but then it's tested in the wilderness. You ever doubted what you heard? You ever had an experience in God? You saw something in the word? He touched you at the altar? Whatever, fill in the blank. It was so real to you in the moment on Sunday, on Saturday night, and then on Tuesday or Wednesday, you're like, I don't know if I even believe in that stuff. That's where it's going to be established. Do you hold to it? God is trying to root and establish you so that you don't need environmental props to believe. So he sent his own son into the wilderness to be tested so that you can believe regardless of the circumstance. And it was only then that he released the power on his son. Again, it's very clear. He went into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He emerged out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. I would propose to you that there are a lot of tongue-talking Pentecostals who do not walk in the power of God, not because they didn't receive a genuine baptism of the Spirit, but because they didn't hold to it in the testing time. And so God has to establish those things in our life. Will you hold to his promises when the environment is not backing those things up? That is what the baptism of fire is about. And so when John was teaching, the one that comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Jesus steps out, goes down in the water, the Spirit comes upon him, and he's immediately driven into the wilderness. And God's going to confront his son because he was our great example. Is there any chaff in his life? And he passed the test and he came out in the power of the Spirit. So when we talk about instructions in baptisms, that is what we're talking about. That, that full-orbed approach to what baptism is. My goodness, it is noon. Go ahead and stand. I was kind of in my introduction, so I really thought it was about, about half past. So, Who's grateful for that, that clock in the back? Yeah, <laughs> that was way too zealous there. I guarantee you the food trucks are appreciative because I would have kept preaching. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Jesus, again, we thank you that you entrusted us with this moment in human history. Lord, these epic shifts. Lord, I ask, God, that your spirit would come upon us. Lord, that we would be those who hold to your truth even in the wilderness. And Lord, that we would be those you could entrust your power. That you would entrust us with your power in this hour of human history. Lord, we thank you. Now send revival to America. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.